Okay. Um, let me see. If Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can tweet me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio. And you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Social Digital Media Incorporated is a 501c3 not-for-profit, member-supported digital multimedia production facility structured to serve the public and independent producers of digital media, primarily for the web. Social Digital Media Incorporated offers state-of-the-art member-funded digital recording studios to allow its members to create portable, professional-quality digital video and audio productions that can easily be rebroadcast using any number of the hundreds of web syndication services currently available. In a nutshell, it's public broadcasting for today's generation. To put it plainly, any person or organization that could benefit from the exposure of radio, TV, or video 
will benefit from the low-cost resources made available through Social Digital Media Incorporated. Our goal is to help promote a digitally inclusive society through emerging digital media production standards that empower its members by providing a digital gateway that provides the tools and personnel needed to produce professional, inexpensive multimedia formats on a digital, portable platform to capture, deliver, and broadcast their message to the world. We are working towards our goal of opening the doors of a state-of-the-art studio to a community of passion-led artists who have a gift to share with the worlds they impact. We are already in the process of creating a new culture of mentors and apprentices equipped with the advanced production skills taught via informal education systems that will foster a brand new learning environment for bridging the digital divide. We move art from concept to impact because social digital media moves the world from disconnected to connected. Find out how to help us reach our goal at socialdigitalmedia.org. We live in a world today where broadcast media has fallen from its once lofty pedestal, the primary source of accurate, concise news and information, to an industry in a state of panic. Faced with the ongoing challenge of monetizing digital news due to the intricate open source complexities of the Internet, we find that instead of newspapers, magazines, and TV networks being separate entities, we now see that they're all merely divisions of the same media conglomerate. In the end result, we find a culture of networks that have evolved to make truth and accuracy secondary, and the pursuit of ratings, advertising dollars, and the buzz of social media the news desk's primary focus. The once rare occurrence has become the standard, and the code of ethics that held the profession of journalism in check is long forgotten, as well as its often touted quotes that were carefully placed in a network statement of retraction and apology for unvetted news stories gone awry. The factual basis for news has taken a back seat to its emotional value and viral potential. This is so much a part of the new media debacle that you can hardly find news stories or even a weather report, for that matter, that have not been exaggerated with a healthy dose of sensationalism, scare tactics, or unwarranted possible tragic outcomes. Shaping public opinion used to be a part of a network's identity that they would reiterate with a daily barrage of blurbs that were meant to educate or reinforce their values or politics that define their mission and would hopefully make them stand out among their competitors as a unique source. Although media seems to have the full attention of the corporate and political base, it seems to be losing its control and status in the realm of public opinion. Most have given up on trying to drive these opinions and are now relying more and more on trying to follow rather than lead and focus on early discovery and adaptation of social media trends in order to hopefully appear to be in line with public opinion. Look, there's a hole in the wall of new media, but the way I see it, the problem's not the hole, the problem is the wall. It's what's hidden behind the wall or veil, if you will, is new media's failing. 
It's no secret that the media has for some time focused on how to earn viewers' loyalty and trust in order to control how and what we think. But the veracity of social media's information exchange has forced new media to rethink their programming and interaction with this new type of viewer that is evolving and growing at a faster pace that can be accurately measured by today's benchmarks. With the on-camera presence of the laptop on virtually every newscast, media has conveniently presented a viable resource that the viewer could very well use to get the same information. This once sedentary audience is now supplementing their viewing experience with a healthy dose of online multitasking and have become very tech-savvy and needs to be recognized as capable of news gathering, critical thinking, and fact-checking from multiple sources at a moment's notice, voicing their point of view, and quickly becoming a viable part of the story through public opinion, which then gives them an even greater role on how news is compiled and disseminated. Our world is rapidly changing, as is our response to news stories and the tactics that can be used effectively to captivate audiences. Some of these tactics that are still used are rapidly becoming outdated. For example, when I hear a news teaser that tells me that I would need to tune in at 10 or 11 to get the full story, I'm no longer at the mercy of the network. As a matter of fact, if I am indeed interested, I search the topic myself on the Internet to find the information that they would want me to wait to hear. And I find that by the time the story airs at 10 or 11, 1. I have more information on the same story that was presented in the newscast. 2. I have already had plenty of time to discuss it in detail with my wife and form my own opinion. 3. Tweeted, posted the topic or news story on Facebook and Google+, LinkedIn from the sources that I've found. And four, I've had the time to respond to the comments from the network of friends and responders. And five, by the time the story airs at 10 or 11, not only am I not further informed by its 40 to 90 second contribution, I'm also unimpressed. Am I the only one who takes this approach? I think not. This is rapidly becoming the norm. Just as YouTube has fostered a culture of content that is promoted after it's produced based on its organic interest and buzzworthy measure on the social media trend curve, we find that new media's attempts to manufacture or counterfeit this kind of response has led to awkward, failed attempts that merge new media concepts with old production standards that, in effect, creates a random hodgepodge that often falls short on both production and execution. Just as Facebook has shown it's far better to go to where the traffic is than to spend the money and resources it takes to drive traffic to you, we see a new paradigm in web analytics that has a repeating theme that reveals that the free trending social media solution that everyone's talking about is what's more often the most effective. Now that the public has fully embraced this powerful new tool of social media and can now dictate by their actions how and where they would like to receive and align themselves with sources of news and information, it's clear that some changes need to be made. 
Although I do have some answers due to over a decade in media and some astute observations, I can say this. What is most important in this ever-changing world of new media, information technology, and social media is that new media visionaries stay focused in order to get that first glimpse of what's new on the horizon and project and plan for its potential impact and opportunity accordingly. So it's imperative in order to gain this advantage that first and foremost that we are at least looking in the right direction. I'm confident to say that I'm looking in the right direction and I'm in the process of perfecting a system of digital media standards that produce social interaction engines that will easily power the social media vehicle of the day and quickly be dropped into the new media model of the future. It's not as difficult as one might think. We just need to see our viewers as trusted partners and not a captive audience. I predicted the death of the printed newspaper back in 2004 for this very same reason. Now you would think that with all this talk about what's wrong in new media, that I would have all the answers. Well, I don't. But I promise though that in the near future, it will be very clear that I have taken up the banner to be a key player in this new media transition. And I have committed myself to do my part to rage against the machine. But this is a major undertaking that although I've laid the groundwork, it will require the support and expertise of some very talented and dedicated individuals. Believe it or not, I think I've got that part taken care of. I have put together my own dream team of visionaries, if you will, that are some of the most dynamic, forward, critical thinkers that the industry has never heard of. Well, not in this capacity anyway. And our unorthodox approach to new media standards will be a catalyst for change and a successful transition. But honestly, our work has just begun. I could puff out my chest and speculate and make vast projections about this new undertaking. After all, I'm honored and humbled at the task and clear vision that God has given me. Yes, I could say more. But anything beyond that requires a measure of truth. Kyle Freeman got his start in business marketing in 1996 in San Diego, California. He was the first field officer promoted to the region in record time. He left the company after several years and became head trainer of a similar company in the telecom marketing industry. Spending many years with two different companies, he decided to set out on his own. In 2003, he created Juice Marketing Incorporated. He served as president and CEO for the next five years. In that period of time, under his leadership, the company JMI became JMI Telecom Corporation, a publicly traded company and one of the only minority-owned public utilities in North Carolina and Kentucky. He is well-known and respected in the network marketing community. Kyle served in the United States Navy as a Chief Petty Officer. After 24 years of service with the Navy and Navy Reserves, he retired with honors in 2008. Now Kyle is ready for his next assignment. As an author and speaker, his goal is to make small to medium-sized businesses, as well as veteran-owned businesses, find funding sources for their companies and projects. 
Most new businesses fail within the first five years due to a lack of funding. His knowledge of venture capital and source funding is what helped him and his partners become a publicly traded company. His goal to help 10,000 companies become publicly traded is lofty, but he's more than ready for the challenge. Kyle Freeman, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, and I really appreciate you hanging in there, Kyle. Uh, we had some technical difficulties, but uh, I think we got it all worked out. Good, good. You know, that's uh, that's sometimes that's the way it is, but uh, however, you know, uh, you have to say in the military, we're always going to push forward and make it happen. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, Kyle, you've got quite an interesting story, and I had, you know, an amazing conversation with you. Now, your goal is to actually help people to, to bring companies public. But, you know, define that for everyone before we get into your background and what brought you to where you are today. Uh, well, well, I appreciate that. I, you know, um, I got started in the uh, financial industry and in insurance when I was in the military, and I started as a part-time basis. I was a jet mechanic. So being a jet mechanic, one of the things that we do is, you know, we get dirty. You know, grease and oil, all that is on us. But one day a buddy of mine was coming, you know, out and, you know, we were getting off work. But he, when we changed, we changed into our regular, you know, clothes, jeans, whatever. We're going back to home or whatever we're going. And he was, he got into a, uh, a tie. And I was like, wow, what are you doing? Uh, where are you going? He said, well, I had a part-time job. So that was my first interest into, you know, trying to uh, wear a clean shirt. <laughs> you know, uh, my buddy and I talk about that, but I have a clean shirt and, and wear a tie. Got into the insurance industry, and from there, you know, got into uh, finances and then got into, you know, uh, basically as you grow, got into venture capital. Uh, started raising money for other companies. And uh, to be honest with you, I really just, you know, kind of got tired of raising money for other companies. And, you know, I was like, man, one day I want to be on the other side of this. And I got a chance to meet a gentleman who was actually, he was kind of like me. He was a stockbroker, got tired of raising money for other companies, and he turned around and created his own company. I befriended him and learned the process. And from there, you know, got more information and uh, found out that that's what I wanted to do, wanted to take a company public. So I was able to do that through the course of meeting other folks and, you know, timing. And I always say that success is when uh, timing and opportunity meet. You know, it's not luck, but it's when timing and opportunity meet. That's success. So that's how everything really kind of started from there. So now you you had an odd background where you were actually, as we spoke, I found out that, you know, this one story here we're going to try to focus on, but <laughs> it's so many other stories interwoven into that as well. And um, we'll, we'll yeah. try to tell the one, but, you know, define again, I just want people to understand because we've heard the term before, but people really don't get it. I don't think when, when you say going public, you know, a lot of us have owned small businesses and, you know, have worked for companies, but define that for us. What does that mean being a public company? Right. Well, when you, uh, most times people think about uh, the fortune 500 and those are the big companies, companies that are on the New York Stock Exchange or companies that are what we call NASDAQ standard, you know, uh, 500. So that's usually uh, index 500. That's usually what, what people think of. But there's different levels of being publicly traded. Again, you could be on the New York Stock Exchange. You could be on the NASDAQ. You could be on the American Stock Exchange. Or you could be on 
uh, what's called the OTC, which is over-the-counter bulletin board. And on that, that's probably the lowest range of where you can be publicly traded. But on that range of OTC, there's three different levels. You have the BB, which is bulletin board. You have the QR, and then you also have the you know the pinks. So basically, with those different areas, you can be publicly traded in three different. And the only difference really is that. Um, you know, it depends upon how much registration you want to pay, and that's what takes up to the level. So being publicly traded basically means that you have shares and you're on the stock market, and those are the different levels of the stock which you could be on. And what happens is people are trading your shares in your company back and forth, and, uh, you know, you, you're putting uh, news out there, you know, worthiness, worthy news of what your company is doing, and your objective is to grow your business, work your business plan, and keep your shareholders happy. And that's really the essence of having a public traded company. Yeah, but you know that's a little scary. You know, it, it, you know, publicly <laughs> traded shareholders. You're talking about things at a whole different level. But you believe that everyone should go ahead and go public. You, you really have to explain that to us. Yes, everybody that has a, a business, a, a small business. See, one of the things that uh, was shared with me, you know, a lot of times it, it comes from, uh, as we talk about our generations, you know, I come from a generation of uh, family members that, you know, basically never ran their own business. So because they didn't run their own business, you know, and again, don't get me wrong, I, I you know, love what my parents did and how they raised me and things like that, but they just, they worked for other companies. And when they were growing up, it was, you know, go out, get a good job, you know, work with that company for 30 years and retire and everything will be good. And that's what my parents were able to do. But, however, nowadays companies are not like that. You can't get with the company. You know, my parents worked for New Jersey Bell. And um, working for New Jersey Bell, uh, if you think about it, right now there's no such thing as New Jersey Bell. So my parents, you know, they get a retirement, but the company that was New Jersey Bell is now called Verizon. So mm. think about in a 30-year period of time, uh, how many people do we know of that have been with that same company and has been that company for that long? So that it usually doesn't happen anymore. Plus, things have changed. You know, when they were coming up, there was no such thing as a 401k plan. There was pension plans. So you worked for that company. They took care of you. And when you retired, you know, basically you were able to live off that pension and everything would be good to go. You go off into the sunset. Well, you know, around the 90s and the late 80s, companies started, you know, figuring out ways to cut things. And, well, we this is going to be too much. And we're going to be putting these pension plans forever and all these people. And, hey, let's just let them do their own thing. So they can put money to a 401k if they want to. But if they don't, that's up to them. And when they retire, hey, the only thing they're going to have is Social Security. So when you think about that and these other companies, well, now, guess what? They're not taking care of you. So if they're not taking care of you, well, that's if you work in a company. Well, what about if you have your own business? Who's mm -hmm. taking care of you with your own business? And see, that's what is even that much more frightening because, I mean, just all you need is a few bad months, especially someone working a business. Someone has a business and they, you know, after 90 days, usually if they don't do that within 90 days, they could be out of business. Now, most people that don't understand, uh, you know, big business, what have they usually done? They've probably got started because uh, just like me, you know, I'm first generation, my own business owner. Now my children will be second generation. But we don't have three and four generations of people to go back to and find out and learn how you got your business started, what did you do, how did you get things done, how did you get through those obstacles, you know, where did you get your funding from. You know where we usually get things? We probably get it from, you know, a loan, go to the bank, or they'll tell us SBA, 
go to the small business administration and get a loan. Or they'll say, you know, like, you know, mortgage your house, you know, pull the equity out of your house. Well, that's not, you know, I, I was listening to uh, Mark Cuban uh, in, in an article or something. He said, I was looking at a, a project. I saw something, a project where he was talking about, and he said, someone that's investing or taking a loan out to start a business, that's not good business sense. This is Mark Cuban, one of the richest guys, you know, in the country. And he would make a statement like that. But most people, guess what they do? And then think about it. If you're going to make an investment like that, because it's why do people usually start a business? Maybe they were working with somebody and thought they could do it better. Uh, most of the time, it's, you know, it's a lifelong dream. And those formulas are not formulas for success. <laughs> so unfortunately, an individual will start a company with bad advice, probably not enough economical backing, and therefore now, you know, it'll be a strain on the business, it'll be a strain on the individual, uh, you know, and then not only that, but then trying to get good help. They won't be paying probably what they need to because they don't have the proper funding sources. So that's why I share with people, you know, everybody should understand the importance of not just, you know, starting your own business, but start your business and understand the funding and the different ways you can get funding behind it. And what's the best way to do it? Taking your company public. Okay, well, you know, you got the energy. I'm motivated. I understand what you're saying, but let me just say something here. And I got to speak for my audience. You know, you're talking board of directors. A business is complicated enough. You're adding something on. It's almost as if you're taking your audience and you're adding an audience. I mean, you're taking your business. You're adding an audience. People who are, who have got you under a, a magnifying glass and are watching your every move. So. You, you really have to, to just jump on the benefits of this. And, and what does it relieve for someone? And, you know, and I understand you know, building a, a company gives you sort of a, a greater um, safety net as far as your own retirement. But, but you know, really build that up for us. Help us to understand what the real benefits are for someone that's just a medium-sized or small business. Okay, so think about it. So if you have uh, the listing audience out there, if you are a business owner, Okay. Now, remember, you probably don't have a 401k plan, all right? You probably, not only do you not have a 401k plan because you're taking everything that you're making, you're putting it back into the business. Okay, so mm -hmm. if you're putting it back into the business, what are you doing for yourself? See, most of the time, people that run their own business or small business, guess what they're doing? They're putting their full effort, their, their everything that they've done. I mean, it's all going into that business, but they don't realize that, you know, you could be utilizing other people's efforts, other people's ideas, and OPM, other people's money. See, there's people out there that basically have funds, and what they want to do is they'll take a look and they say, well, you know what, I could take my money and I could put it into a bank. Now, when you take that money, hard-earned dollar, and you put it into a well, what kind of percentage are they getting back on it? So let's just do the numbers. Let's just say it's 3%. So let's be really simple with it, and let's just say uh, $1,000. So you take $1,000, you put it into the bank, it sits in the bank for a year. Now, do you really think that that bank is just leaving your $1,000 sitting right there? No, but I know it's losing money for you. It's losing money because look at what happens. After a year of your $1,000 sitting in the bank, which is really not sitting there, but you think it is because that's what your account says, you're going to have 3% the following year. Well, what's 3% of $1,000? And guess what? I'm being real kind with that, too. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> so so what are you going to make, what, $30? Yeah. 
up 3%, so there, but suppose there's somebody out there that says, look, you know what, well, I'm getting a 12% return, or I'm a 15% return. Well, that's what those type of people are looking for. So the people that are wealthy, well, they don't just take their money and put it in the bank. They put their money in projects that are making money. Well, guess where they're putting their money? They're putting their money in projects like, think about this. Apple is about to come out with a brand-new phone. The Apple, what, 6 or something like that? My daughter told me she wants the new Apple, whatever. I mean, I, you know, it looks the same as the first iPad, you know, iPhone to me. And now they got the iPhone 6 coming out, <laughs> and it looks just like the first one. But whatever it is, look at what's happening. You are now, you, you're going to be part of that, you know, I think it's a rush right now for $5 million. $5 million of those waiting to come out. Well, that's why Apple, a public traded company, can go out and get that out there because they know those shares are out there flowing for their company. And I've got to keep coming up with new concepts and new ideas so that people are going to basically, they want to keep buying that stock. And that's why it's up so high. Think about, uh, I don't know if you remember that company, uh, Pixar. I love to use this uh, analogy, mm -hmm. especially when I talk about Apple, because a lot of people don't realize Pixar. Pixar was an animation company. And Steve Jobs, you know, rest in peace, but Steve Jobs gave Pixar a billion dollars every year for five years. Mm. Every year for five years, he funded them a million dollars. So that's all they had. But look at the movies that they came out Did with. Did you say you a know, million or a billion with a B? No, one million with an M. One oh, million dollars. Okay. okay. And they, right, one million. But every year for five years, he funded mm -hmm. uh, Pixar. It was called Pixar, you know, Animation. Well, when he did that, they came out with movies like The Incredibles. You know, they came out with movies like, you know, Bugs Life. They came out with uh, all the different movies that are out there, you know, uh, Cars, you know, and things like that. So all these blockbuster movies that came out Finding Nemo through Pixar, I mean, was amazing. With a billion-dollar annual budget, you know, from Steve Jobs. Hmm. Then he realized that, hey, look, you know what? We can really blow this thing up. So what does Steve Jobs do? He put together uh, a, a venture capital raise, and he raised $100 million. They went from Pixar you know, animation to Pixar Studios and went public. Now, when they went public, they were working. It was a, it was a working agreement with Disney. They weren't owned by Disney at the time. It was a working agreement. Disney bought them, and now they became, they went from Pixar Animation to Pixar Studios. Steve Jobs is now on the board of Disney, and the gentleman who was running Pixar Animation is now the head of Disney Animation. Oh, nice. I see. Why? Because they went public. Hmm. Now, <laughs> now, now you, you, you gave us some great examples, Kyle, but... You know, a little guy who has a hardware store or a guy who has a small detailing business, um, how, how would they make themselves attractive enough to, to get the attention of big investors and to, to actually make this going public work? Well, you know what? I was glad that you said that because I knew that those were going to be some of the things that, that people might say. Now, this is the thing, Michael, okay? They may be small now, but is that their intention to stay small? Mm. 
Because, see, if that's their intention to stay small, then, then there's no problem. Some people don't want to go public, and that's okay. But let me share something with you, and let's go back to Apple. Apple was started in the garage. Right. Dell, Dell Computers was started in Michael Dell's college dorm room. Mm-hmm. You know, Facebook was started in the college dorm room with Mark mm-hmm. Zuckerberg. So, yeah, so when you first started, yes, that was the thing just to get it. It was a concept. It was an idea that felt good. But what did they do? They started going out and finding other people. And especially, you know, when I got out there and I started building, you know, the company, I, you know, I had to tinkle my cup because I wanted to do things. I, I, I was signing agreements. You know, the way that I really got on the map was I signed a five-year deal with a $120 million company. And that just took me from just being a regular, you know, uh, small business to now I'm partnered with a $120 million company. Well, you can't sit next to, to a company like that and not learn and not pick up mm-hmm. something. So now, now, how did that happen? I mean, come on. That just, <laughs> you, you're just throwing these successes out there. you got to give us a stairwell, a path or something, a rope to climb up. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, and but see, and that's the thing too with Microsoft. The same thing, you know. Uh, Bill Gates actually, you know, he he went to Texas and he, and he got with the company and he bought a software package for fifty thousand dollars. Once he bought that software package for fifty thousand dollars, he was able to take it and put that into the computers. But he worked a deal with, you know, with Japan, and so when the computers were coming back over here, they already had Microsoft in there. And that's how it was able, that's how it worked. So it takes, again, like I said, you know, success is not luck. It's when opportunity and timing be. And it just happened that, you know, I, when I, we talked about in the introduction, you talked about a couple of those companies I had been with. And uh, what's the reason for leaving? Because, you know, someone has done something to you or someone has done something wrong or, you know, you think you do a little bit better. And guess what happened to me? I, I felt like I was, you know, misused and abused. So instead of just basically staying with the company, I said, you know, it's time for me to move on. Well, while I was moving on, you know, I went back to one of the vendors of that bigger company. And I went back to them and I let them know, hey, look, I just, you know, uh, started my own company. And they said, okay, well, great. So now here it is. This company was utilizing them, but I went back to them and I said, I'm going to do my own thing. They remembered me from a conference and I did a presentation in front of like a thousand people and they, they signed me to a contract. So now I, I have a contract just like the company I was working with. So that's how we continue to start to grow. So from there, mm-hmm. I met other businesses. Mm-hmm. And then I started going to, and I can, I, can, I can tell you this, that, and again, as a small business, sometimes, you know, we just, you know, you as a, a, a business owner, you don't have uh, the fortitude to be able to lead because if, you, if you're not there, uh, then, you know, things are not going to get done. You know, if you're not there, you know, then your workers are not going to do what they need to do and produce. But you, I, I remember that one time I had a gentleman that um, he could hear me on the phone. I was, you know, working diligently, and he would call me up, and I never had time to talk to him because I was so busy working. He said, he said, Colin, I want to do a favor for you. He said, I want to give you some advice. And I was working. I said, well, what do you mean you're going to give me some advice? You know, what are you talking about? He said, Colin, he said, learn to work on your business, not in your business. Michael, wow. I can't tell you that. Wow. Yeah, I can't tell you how profound that statement is. Wow. You know, Dude, it, say that yeah. again. I mean, come on. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have a business, and mm. this is the problem because most of the small business owners, they don't realize that as your business grows, they continue to stay small. And why do you stay small? Because you have not learned how to work on your business.
in your business. Mm. And that's what we say. Don't stay. Most of the time, you're inside your business. And when you're inside your business, you can't stand back and take a look. So what mm. you've got to do is you know how to look, work on it, not in it. So when you're working on it, you start putting systems in place. And as you put those systems in place and you make those things happen, that's when you realize that, okay, you know what, now I can do this. In a, if there's a book. Uh, that he referred to me, and it was one of the books that changed my life. And uh, it was called, you know, the E Myth Theory. And if you heard, if you heard of the E Myth Theory, the letter E, Myth M Y T H E Myth Theory. Mm. And uh, the book now has been actually has been rewritten. So now it's called the E Myth Theory Revisited. Fifteen years later. But it was just phenomenal, and it, it just changed my life because it changed my whole thought process. And sometimes that's all it is. It's just basically someone that comes, I call them, you know, I call them spinners. Someone comes into your life, and they touch you, and they spin you in another direction. Right. And they come into your mm. life and spin you in another direction. And once mm. that happens, you're going one way, but somebody comes and just touches you, boom, and you turn that direction. And, and, and what happened with that, it just blew me away. And, and the next thing you know, I started trying to figure out how do I get out of this that I created. I created this big, you know, this big fortress. I was 10,000 square feet. I had 15 employees, you know, $50,000 a month payroll, $18,000 a month in space. You know, it was, it was amazing. Your most two and most expensive, you know, items when you're running your business are personnel, which is payroll and real estate. So mm. now you start looking at these things, these companies like, you know, if you, if you get to hear about it, but Regency and people that are now looking to work in these, you know, uh, micro offices and, and basically yeah, being able to yeah. work in places. That's, you know, that's the new, the new, you know, realm to be able to move mm -hmm. and be able to get around. And the difference with these big companies, when I was a big company, I couldn't, I couldn't be stealth. I couldn't, couldn't move. And um, I, I'm going to, I wanted to give you something that's going to really kind of blow you out the water. But um, to just, just, just hear me out on this and think about this, but it, but it makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, one of the gentlemen I was working with, um, I, I, I met him. I was doing a presentation. I was out in San Diego, and, I, and as I was doing this presentation, um, there was an orange Lamborghini sitting outside. And so I was sitting outside the hotel, and so I went and I looked in, and I saw the gentleman doing a presentation. I said, okay, well, that must be his car. He's in front of the room <laughs> because whoever's car that was there in front of the room. So what I did was I went up and I did my presentation, came back down, and they were still in there. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to wait for this guy. I want to talk to him. And so what I did was I waited outside for half an hour, and I wanted to talk to that guy and ask him, what did he do? And I remember when he came outside, and I saw him, and I looked at him, and most of the time, people that are like that, they're friendly, they want to talk to you, most people are just afraid to say something to him. And I said, hey, mm -hmm. i got to ask you, what do you do? He said, I'm with the Internet. Now, think about it, this was back in 1999. And wow. he said, I'm with the Internet, what do you do? Yeah. And I said, well, I'm with a marketing company. And he said, wow, now, think this is the first marketing company that I was with. And when he said it to me, he said, well, hey, you know, uh, which company are you with? And I told him the name of the company. He said, oh, I know Robert very well. And he knew the, one of the co-founders of the company. And I was like, what? You know him? And he was like, yeah. He said, look, why don't you come on up to Irvine and take a look at what we have? Now, think about it. I'm, I'm working with one of the top ten money earners of the company that I'm with at the time. And now this gentleman who drives an orange Lamborghini tells me to come on up and have lunch with him. <laughs> now, what do you think hmm. I did? Oh, you went up there, um, had lunch. As a matter of fact, you left right then and there, and you waited. You waited two weeks until he showed up, right? No. <laughs> That's right. We had lunch. We went up there and saw him. 
And uh-huh. once I went there, they broke down everything to me and showed to me, and I got a chance to see it. You know, the veil was lifted, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And so I, I, I started working with that company. And so oh, I was wow. working directly with the owner of a company. So I get all of these stories, and, you know, I call them parables along the way, but, you know, you have to take them and learn from them. And sometimes you just want to understand, and, you know, you say, look, God, you know, what am I supposed to learn in this situation? Because every seed or in every obstacle, there's going to be that seed of opportunity. And you just got to be, you know, be this discernment, have that discernment and understand what it is. And when you get that opportunity, you got to be able to take it. And so that's where we are right now with the book going public. You know, uh, it's an opportunity. And I thought about it. I said, well, nobody wants to hear my story. And as I talked to people and shared with them, I said, you know, well, I mean, you know, I, I was just working. I was doing what I thought I needed to do. I, I didn't think it was that big. I didn't think it was that incredible. And more and more folks that we talked about, they're like, wow, I never heard of a, you know, a minority-owned public utility. I never heard of a minority-owned public utility and public traded company. I was like scratching my head like, Really? Wow. Okay. You know, uh, man. You know, how old are you? I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not 50 yet. Wow. You had a public traded company. You're not 50 yet. Wow. How'd you do that? Where, 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 where'd you get your finance degree from? Where, where'd you get your marketing degree from? Well, I, I don't have a degree. <laughs> what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you know, it kind of, it was funny. I got a chance to sit down with a group of people one day, and they, they were with Wachovia. Remember when the bank was called Wachovia? And they sat me down and they said, you know, hey, look, well, we're just looking through your resume and we're looking at this and we don't understand how you're in public. And, you know, these guys are all degreed up. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, wow, you guys got all these degrees, but you don't know anything, huh? (laughs) You know, (laughs) just amazing. Yes, yes. So uh, I love, you know, I love the book Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because uh, Mm -hmm. it is truly, truly, truly you know, the way society and a lot of people think. Yeah. You know, Kyle, I've already decided we're going to run a little over. Plus, you know, (laughs) we knew that was going to happen anyway, but then we had some technical difficulties. So, yeah, you know, you got to tell the story, though. I mean, there's so many things I want to touch on, but I'm trying to be selective. Um, You've got to tell the boiler room story. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, well, you know, uh, there's a movie out. It's called Boiler Room, and um, you know, back in the day, that's what a lot of some of the businesses used to do, and that was kind of one of the ways that I, you know, broke, you know, broke my teeth into into the industry. And um, what we were able to do is basically we were able to get on the phone and you know, talk to people and ask them about you know certain things and you know see if they wanted to be able to to buy in. Well, you know. Uh, the SEC had passed the law and banned you to be able to cold call and make calls like that. But, um, you know, uh, recently, you know, President Obama had lifted that ban within, I think it was about a year ago. And so now you can do it again. But what a lot of people don't understand, especially if you have a business, if you have a business, there's certain, you know, steps that you have to take. I won't go through that, you know, to this evening, but there's certain steps that you have to take. And once you do that, um, you can actually sell shares in your company. And it's really, 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 I mean, it's just like that. So once you're able to do it now, you can't do it the boiler room way anymore because that, that way is illegal now. But, however, you know, you're able to do it. There's still other ways, and you have, you know, uh, really you have devices now. I mean, we didn't have Internet back then. We didn't have, you know, you know Facebook, and, you know, we didn't have, all, you, know, you know, Twitter, <laughs> things like that. So, you know, we had to do it the old-fashioned way. But 
now there's so much technology out there. There's so many companies you can work with. There's so many ways to communicate with people. But it's just a matter of people just understanding, you know, really getting that information and getting out there and talking to folks. But we used to, uh, yeah, we used to get on the phones and, and talk to people and uh, basically, you know, uh, get them to, to pick up, you know, shares of companies. <laughs> right. And, and those are the skills that you learn to really be able to sell yourself. But really get out there and get to a certain point. I mean, the hard sell is the hardest sell to do because you could lose it at any moment, you know? Right. And, um, right. Yeah. And, and I've done some hard sell work in my time and you know I, I know how difficult it is and i've sold intangibles and you know it's nothing like selling ideas and concepts once you master that you can sell anything but you know um i, I guess part of the things that you wanted to well you share with me i, I guess will be off the record but um it was a good story anyway <laughs> uh, how, how how much you guys um well what you did in a life of leisure so to speak is because of the um, the way you guys were able to work and uh, and how you were able to turn things over so quickly. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, because I'm sure people have seen, like I said, if you've seen the movie Boiler Room, if you've seen the movie The Wolf on Wall Street, if you've seen, you know, Michael Douglas in, in, in Wall Street, I mean, that's, that's the lifestyle. And what's crazy is that, I mean, it literally is like that. But, you know, it, it's like that still. I mean, look at the market right now. It's at 12,000. You know, those guys mm-hmm. out there are having a ball. Right. right. <laughs> you know, look at the stockbrokers that are out there probably driving, you know, you know, uh, SL500s or, you know, SL600s, you know, or they're driving those cars. You know, that was uh, the one thing about the gentleman with the Lamborghini. Uh, think about this and, and think how this could really, I mean, you would really be able to motivate some other people or even probably be able to, to recruit other people to work with you. You know, I, when I saw somebody who was driving an orange Lamborghini, I said to him, wow, what do you do? And then he said, hey, come on up to Irvine. Well, he, I, I go an hour and a half to follow this gentleman because of the car that he was driving. Mm-hmm. And then he shared with me, he told me a concept, he said, hey, Kyle, look, he said, look, you need to get a Lamborghini. And I said, are you crazy? <laughs> I'm married. You know, I said, I'm married. I got two kids. What in the world are you talking about? He said, Kyle, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, uh, how much do you think this car costs? And I said, well, I'm not sure. And it was a, it was a, uh, a it's an Alpine Lamborghini, uh, Momo, number 11. There was 12 Lamborghinis made that year. He had mm-hmm. one and his sister had the other one. And basically, so that was two of the 11 that they had. And he said, Kyle, this car is $300,000. He said, the notes on it are $4,000 a month. And I was like, you got to be kidding. Oh, my goodness. He Mm -hmm. said, Kyle, how did I get you? (laughs) (laughs) So he said, Kyle, if I hadn't been driving around in a Trans Am or a Corvette, (laughs) I, I, I wouldn't have got you. He mm-hmm. said, but I got you because of the Lamborghini. So is that worth $4,000 a month? Yes. Now think about it. How many people have offices where they're paying four, five, six thousand dollars $6,000 a month? Wow. He said, Kyle, that's my office. So <laughs> guess what? He's spending $4,000. Yeah. He said he spends $4,000 a month, but that's his office. So he drives around. He said, Kyle, I'll go around the block and I'll recruit 10 people. Mm. Because everybody wants to know what I do. They give me their cards. I don't have to give them my cards. They give me their cards. They want me to call them. And it just, again, now think about it. Most people won't think like that. Most people say, well, wow, I can't afford a Lamborghini. See, the first thing you want to come out with is the negative. I can't. 
you know, and I taught my kids, you know, that they don't use the word can't. There's no such thing as can't. Because until I actually, you know, got into the Lamborghini, you know, sat into the seat, you know, felt the steering wheel, drove the vehicle, um, you know, I, I never envisioned myself, you know, with a Lamborghini, just pictures of it. Now, he didn't know I had pictures of, of, of Lamborghinis that one day I'd love to be able to own. But here it is. Because of him, I was able to drive a Lamborghini. We drove from L.A. to Vegas, and he let me drive it. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. so Kyle, the big question is, 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 did you buy yourself a Lamborghini? Yeah, no, I'm still trying to convince my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's my problem too. Yeah, I'd have one too if it wasn't for yeah. My wife doesn't like the two seater. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> right, right. And see, the one thing he was single, so I mean, you know, so he was single, so he could do that. But I, you know, I'm like, you gotta be crazy, man. I'm married. I got two kids. There's no way where my wife is gonna let me get a Lamborghini. But you know, understanding the, the you know, understanding for ramifications of how it works now. But. That was really just, it was a learning experience. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And um, quite an experience to be able to drive that car, and it's surprising that he would allow you to drive a car that, you know, if I had a Lamborghini, I don't know if I'd ever let anyone drive it. I mean, you have to be real close to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what, he, he understood you know, it was really, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I learned so much from that gentleman during my time, you know, the few years that we spent together. And, um, you know, it was just, I mean, it was a different culture, you know, but they taught me certain things. I mean, you know, and, again, he was he just looted wealth. I mean, they lived in like a $1.3 million home in, you know, in Pasadena Hills. You know, look over, you know, go in a balcony, look over in the banister, and you would see the Rose Bowl. You're looking down on the Rose Bowl. So, I mean, you know, just where they came from, but it was really, I mean, it was just amazing. And, again, I said, it just stretched my mind, and I just, you know, I'm so appreciative for those lessons learned back then. Yeah, and um, so you, you have a book coming out and um, on taking your company public. So tell people what they can expect. How How is it laid out? How will they be able to, you know, get into the meat and, and understand how this process works? How How do you make it plain? Well, well, what happened was this, Mike. I um, you know, I actually um, I have another company that I've created, and uh, that company basically um, we're looking to take that company public also. So what I did was I went to an attorney friend of mine, and I basically wanted to start utilizing his office, and I wanted to start having him. He's a business attorney, so I wanted to start having him bring some business in because I wanted to show him, hey, look, you know, uh, I'm going to take this company public. I'm going to show you how we did it. So I want you to start bringing people in or let me bring people to your office, and we can start doing these, you know, conference calls and presentations. And he said, Colin, I like that. That's going to be a great idea. And he said, by the way, he said, you know, uh, and I mean, how, how did you take your other company public? I said, well, I did a reverse merger. He said, yeah, I know that, Kyle, but I mean, but how'd you do it? And I said, well, what do you mean how to do it? I said, what are you asking me for? You're the attorney. <laughs> Why are you asking me? <laughs> and he said, he said, see, Kyle, see, that's what's wrong with guys like you. He said, how would I know? He said, yes, I'm an attorney, but I have specialized knowledge, just as you have a specialized knowledge. He said, how would I know? Have you written a book? Have you trained a course? Have you taught a seminar? And I thought about that, and it really started to resonate with me. And as I just thought about it, I went home that weekend, and I thought about it over and over and over. And I said, man, I said, you know what? I need to write a book about this. And so what I did was, to be honest with you, Michael, it was very therapeutic because I just started writing. It had been some years since we had did it, and since then, you know, we had sold the company, and that's why I said I'm working on doing it with another company. But what I did was I just started writing 
And I said, you know what? I'm going to write, and I'm going to write every time I have some free time. If I'm not sleeping, I'm going to write. When I wake up, I'm going to write. In between mm-hmm. time and at breaks appointments, I'm going to write. I'm going to write, 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 write until I finish. So what I did was 60 days later, I had 21 chapters. Wow. And it's funny when you yeah when you put your mind in something because I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I had some other people that were talking to me about you know having to publish with them and doing certain things. But once you set your mind to something, and once you get on that laser guided focus, you know I got an email that came across my way and it talked about you know self publishing, and I'm like wow look at this chill look at God <laughs> having this mm. come at this particular time in my life when mm-hmm. I just got writing this book and my wife had been telling me that I should self-publish but I didn't know anything about publishing so I ended up calling up this gentleman he's out there in Beverly Hills and uh, it's Tenacious Books and basically I spoke with him and he said hey yeah well you know it sounds like you have something I'd love to take a look at it so I sent the book over to him and CC'd a copy to my attorney and he said you don't have to worry about it because basically your email timestamp is your receipt and so basically, should something happen, whatever, you have that email timestamp, so that's documented. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. well, that's right. my attorney anyway. And once I sent it to him, he read it, and he read it over the weekend. And so he called me back on Monday, and he said, hey, I like your book, man. I want to publish it for you. And I was like, really? I said, you finished it up? He said, well, it wasn't a novel. <laughs> 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 and, and that's what my goal was to do. My goal was just to really put together a book and uh, really just to get 100 pages, but um, to just tell the story of what we did and, and how we did it because uh, I know there's other small business owners out there that, that are like me. I know there's hundreds, there's thousands that are like me that, you know, just couldn't get help from the SBA. Did, did, you know, parents weren't able to help you out, you know, didn't know you had, but you got this dream that's burning inside of you, and you've got to get it out, but just nobody's there to help you answer any questions. And anybody you tell this to, they, they want 60% of your company, you know, basically, you know, you're going you're gonna to end up giving your company away. So I said, let me put something together to be able to help that small to medium-sized business. And, you know, being a veteran, too, everybody kept telling me, well, you go get, get your veteran, you can get your home loan through the VA, or you can get, you know, you get a loan for your business. But still and through, they, they, want, they, they want so many different things. They keep you in these parameters. And you've got to do, you know, you've got to jump through this hoop and go through this hoop, and you can't do what you want to do. You know, one of the things about being an entrepreneur is your creativity. And with that creativity, you know, sometimes it just doesn't fit in a square box. <laughs> right, right. You but know, there's, and there's but before you get away from it, though, you know, you, you're throwing some things at us, and, and one of those things that you know we we just don't know is, um, you know, you have to explain that to people. That's pretty complicated. You just told me your attorney didn't know how to do it, so you know, you got to give us something on that. Just explain the concept <laughs> itself. I, I know you can't tell us how to do it in a, a number of words, but just, just give us an idea what that means. Well, well that, that was the reason why we came up with, you know, Creative Capital Solutions. Uh, because uh, it, it was creative. It's creative in how we do it. It's different, but, you know, we're raising capital, and we've got solutions. There's no one set way to do it. You know, there's a couple different ways that you can get it done. But the biggest thing that I, that I like to share with people is this, is, um, you know, have lunch with a millionaire. You know, um, one of the things that I got from, you know, from the book with um, 
you know, Robert Kiyosaki, which was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he talked about, in the book, he talked about lessons learned. He talked about learning lessons from his, his father, which was his biological father, who was a college professor and, you know, basically was set salary and didn't know how to get through other things. But then he talked about his best friend's father, who was like a father to him, and that was his rich father. But he used to teach them lessons. And it wasn't just he wouldn't just tell them how to do it. And see, that's part of the, the that's part of the hunt. That's part of the thrill. And I believe the reason so many times why uh, so many people don't get it is don't understand uh, the thrill. There's never there's never failure. You know, it's just when you stop trying, that's when it's failure. See, again, that's when I go back to, and every time you have an obstacle, there's always a seed of, of greater opportunity. So what happened to me is that when um, I turned around and, and I had the, the hiccup with that company and I knew that it was time for me to go, that seed of opportunity was to go back to that vendor who, when I did that presentation for those thousand people, and call them up and said, hey, look, I started my own company, you know, and then they sent me an agreement and a contract to work with them. See, I could have forgot about that or I could have said, well, I, I don't know if they'll work with me because I'm a small company, but it was an opportunity. You know, when I when I sat down and uh, I basically I got a chance to to meet with their attorneys, and once I met with their attorneys, well, I went back to their attorneys and I said, Hey, look, I, I started my own company now, and I want to know would you represent me? And they were like, Wow, you know, okay, yeah, we'll represent you, and that was their 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 attorneys. Now their attorney, that big company, is now little old me. That's my attorney. And the only thing that the attorney was concerned with was what? Paying that retainer every month. <laughs> That's all it was. You know, so again, in every obstacle, there's that equivalent seed of opportunity. You know, when we went and we turned around and became a public utility, and I remember that, you know, they sent us this long application. And once I looked at this long application, I said, what in the world? How are we going to fill this? That these terminologies and things, we don't know what this says. What? Well, how do we get this done? Well, guess what? I, you know, I didn't know, but I had some people that were around me that knew, so I sent that back to my attorney. So mm-hmm. then I sent that application to my attorney. So when North Carolina Public Utilities Commission, when they got – the application, it didn't come from the offices of JMI. It came from the attorney of, you know, Wellman and Warren. Mm. So what do you think the Public Utilities Commission is going to be looking yeah. at when it makes me a letter coming from a lawyer? Oh, my goodness. What did we do wrong? But <laughs> 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 well, guess what? When they open it up and it says, here's the application to apply for, you know, for a public utilities license in the state of North Carolina, they're probably saying, phew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so all we got to do is answer a couple questions. I think it was like maybe four or five questions after that. The next thing you know, they responded back, and they're like, hey, congratulations. You know, you're now a public utility. Well, guess what? I didn't know at the time I was only one of two minority-owned public utilities in the country. Wow. (laughs) And then when we went to get our... Yes, we went to get our Minority Diversity Supplier Certification, and once we did that, I remember talking with the lady in Chicago. She said, you know what, I've certified over 80 companies. I've been doing this for five years. She said, I've never heard of a minority-owned public utility. Mm-hmm. We didn't know we were doing something incredible. We were just going to work. Well, I, I just want to break in here for a second, Kyle. <laughs> uh, we're about to lose our live listeners, and hopefully um, – 
you know, you guys can tune back into the show. On demand, you'll get the full version of it. And I'll have an edited podcast version um, available for you also probably by tomorrow. But um, we're going to go ahead and continue on. And uh, guess what? We got a caller that called in. It's King. And um, I guess he has a couple of words for you as well. It's probably something he has a question about. (laughs) Great. King, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on. How are you doing tonight, Cal? I'm great. I'm great, King. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. You know, I just want to commend you, gentlemen, on doing a great show. Um, I'm listening here, and I'm I'm actually enjoying the show. And, and I, you know, in transparency, you know, actually I do work with Cal. But as I listen to uh, Cal talk about his stories, and, of course, I know him personally, and I'm working with him, I know that he has a passion for really helping other people. You know, and I just listen to how he talks about what he's doing with such enjoyment. You know, and I think that's what people really need to realize nowadays is that, you know, it's, it's things have changed. People are kind of shifting their focus in their lives to how can they make a more significant impact in the world? What can mm-hmm. they do to fill their lives? Because they, they've made their money. They've lived their careers. They've had their families. And they realize there's still something missing from them. And so cows. You know, what you're doing, your book, helping people take their companies public um, and turn it into a coaching and um, mentoring as well as an educational service to help businesses do it, I think is, is not only necessary, but I think it's actually um, needed in our society as we go forth to, you know, stop being in that 99%. I tell people one of the best ways to deal with that, you know, once we start talking and we've identified there is a 1% of the people who own the wealth and 99% of people don't, that the goal should be to get close as you can to becoming part of that 1%, you know, and starting your own business is one of the keys to doing it. So I just want to commend you gentlemen on that, give me the opportunity to share that and um, ask everybody to definitely support his Kiva Zip campaign. He hasn't mentioned it because that's the only way we're going to be able to get his book out there and let him to share because it's all about giving and sharing. And that's what Kyle is, being a catalyst and doing it. So I'm glad to be working with you. And I look forward to um, listening to the rest of the show. All right. Well, King, thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, King, thanks for calling in. And um, we'll, we'll talk with you again real soon. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thanks, King. You know, Kyle, one of the things that I really, really like and I'm taking home from this whole thing is um, – you don't have to know everything, but you got to be willing to learn everything. You got to be willing to go after the information. You can't sit on your haunches and say to yourself, "I don't know this thing." You know, you really have to look at what you don't know and figure out a way to go find out. If it's not by talking to someone who knows better than doing the research, but there's always a path. And and you have to keep moving. You have to move towards the goal. You cannot allow a uh, obstacle hinder you. You you can't take any obstacle and allow it to defeat you. Yes, um, you know, Michael. That that's a very very uh, strong point. Um, what's really incredible about this whole ride is that um, I always used to share with you know with my team. Uh, I would always tell them, you know, I would say to them, Kaizen. And when I would talk to them about Kaizen, you know, I'd make sure when we hired new people, I would ask them, Hey, look, do you know what Kaizen is? And if they would say no, I said, look, you know, by the, by the end of the week, I need you to come to my office, and I've got an open-door policy, and I want you to tell me the definition of Kaizen because I need mm-hmm. you to understand it. And Kaizen is Japanese for constant improvement. 
Mm. One of the things that I started understanding is that um, if you think about the car dealerships, and if you remember Ford, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s, so I'm kind of giving up my age, but if you remember Ford in the 70s, you know, Ford was a company, and the, the name of it was, you know, Ford, F-O-R-D, found on road dead, or fixed or repaired daily. You know, people didn't like Fords back then. They broke down all the time. But And I used to listen to that, and I said, wow, but then one day I heard that the best-selling truck for the last 35 years is a Ford F-150. Mm-hmm. So you start saying, you're like, well, wow, well, Ford, where did they go wrong? Well, it was something with the cars that they were having problems with, but the trucks, they always continued to do that. Why? Because the trucks were the backbone of America. The mm-hmm. trucks were what, mm-hmm. what made things go. And so America, that's what we were. That's what we, we fought, and we wanted to make things happen. That's how we did it. But for some reason, we, we lost that. And when we lost that, the Japanese cars, you know, the Honda, you know, and, you know, the, the Toyota. And, you know, they came in, and basically when they did that, um, you know, I mean, Nissan, which was actually, you know, Datsun, when they came in, um, it was amazing because they actually had a process, and that process was called Series Z. And that Series Z was actually um, – if you've heard of Six Sigma. Yeah. Six, Sig- Six Sigma was taking processes. So let's say if it took a, with the assembly line, and if it took 10, you know, processes, well, Six Sigma would come in and say, okay, which two of these processes can we remove to make this process now eight steps, but yet we can still get the same result. Mm. And that was Kaizen. That was Japanese coming in. That's how they came in and, and brought those cars over here. And a lot of people just don't understand that. I remember when I was little, you know, when we were growing up, the little toys and everything, they always said made in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't see that anymore. You know why? Because Japan has become a powerhouse. But it was all the little trinkets and things like that, all the little toys, whatever it was, it was made in Japan. Now the cars that they're bringing over here are major economic, you know, I mean, just influences. So I just kind of kept that in my head and said, look, look at this country. Look at this country that we, we bombed and went back over there and helped build it. But not only only helped build it, but they turned around and reversed it on us. And now it's basically become an economic powerhouse. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. And, um, you know, we didn't talk much about your, your military discipline and training and about some of the things you've learned um, being in the Navy. And um, there, there's so many different things we want to touch on, the TV shows that you ran and the people you've met. I mean, Kyle, it's just so much. And, I, you know, I've thought over this over and over again. And I tried my best to narrow this show to where it is right now. And I said, I'm not going to talk to this guy no more because, you know, I'm going to go on overload trying to figure out how I'm going to produce this show with this with this renaissance man who who's pretty much had his fingers in everything all at the same time. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But, yeah, I definitely want to have you back on again, and we can just talk more about a lot of things. And we're going to do the best that we can also to promote your um, your Kiva and um, and tell us a little bit about that, too, before we go. Right. Well, Kiva actually is a program. Uh, it, it's phenomenal, and I, and I found out 
that program through King, who was just on. And a matter of fact, through King, that's how I got a chance to meet you, Michael. But, right, um, right. you know, King said there was an event that was going on, and uh, he wanted me to see if I could get up there. And, you know, I just, you know, I knew I had to be a part of it because I wanted to be able to meet a new group of people and uh, just share with them, you know, this, this book that we have called Going Public. But with Kiva, uh, what they do is they actually look to help small businesses, and they give them a loan. And that loan, basically what you do is, is you tell people about your uh, your project or your business, and what they do is all these people continue to just donate. Well, Kiva is a worldly organization, so what happens is people from all over the world are looking at what you're doing, and they donate to your project. And it, it's phenomenal. And so I've met some other people that, you know, basically have donated to my project. And what I did was I just said, look, you know what, um, again, thinking that what I'm already used to is raising capital and doing things, I said, well, let me raise the capital to do my book and to get my book out. And what, and what I was thinking in the terms of doing that was also, you know, getting pre-sales. So instead of making mm, look, yeah. I could print up, you know, come up with a concept and then get the book funded and then therefore now to get out. But then I could show people that not only did I write a book, but look, let me show you how I use the program to get my book out, create a consulting company. So that when people ask those questions about how you do this, look, well, here you have the book, but now you can sign up with my consulting company called Creative Capital Solutions and I can guide you through the process because, see, it's not just the fact that we have the book. But what Kiva is going to allow me to do is allow me to go out and share with everybody, you know, my story. And so with the funds that are through the loan, uh, we're going to be doing a couple launches of the book up there in the D.C. area. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to do another launch with the book down in the Atlanta area. Uh, I might also see if I could do one out there on the West Coast. Um, what we're also going to be able to do is just with the consulting company, uh, put the website together and just get the information out there and really just, just help these businesses um, – give back because we want to turn around and now start helping fund other Kiva, you know, uh, loans that are out there and uh, inform other people about what happened with with me because, see, it's not about me. I just, I'm the vessel to get it done and and I'm just so blessed for the, um, you know, for the opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah, and you're a, a willing participant for a number of different success models, and uh, that's great because you, whatever you go through, you're going to have a great story to share with us and give us some insight on some things that you know we just haven't thought of because that's what you do. <laughs> well, you know, um, you know, you mentioned my military background, and you know, uh, after 24 years, you know, again, I said I was able to retire as a chief petty officer, and um, one of the things that in the military. Um, you know, there, there's there's two two strands of of a story in the military. You'll hear some people say, "Yeah, I went in there and I got out and I did my seven years, or I got my four years, or whatever." But then the people that usually did, you know, really retired, um, it's because not only can you go into the military and you know they'll give you something, but you can take something from that. And one of the things that I took from the military, you know, I was in the Navy, world's greatest fighting force. And I'm talking about any time, any country, anywhere I came up to, I never felt like I didn't have what I needed or I wasn't equipped mm. to succeed because it was just powerful. We would go to other countries. I mean, it was just amazing to be able to say, wow, you're, you know, you're, you're with the United States Navy. I mean, it wasn't like we just said Navy. You're with the United States Navy. And, you know, it's a shame that some people never get a chance to feel that. You never get the chance to feel how great this company is. I mean, are we the best? 
I mean, you know, no, they, everybody's got flaws. Everybody's got problems, you know, but, I mean, but to, and to be blessed to live in this country at this time, at this day and age, uh, it, it was truly phenomenal. And so what I did during my period of time, my first few years, I kind of coasted through there and got through it. But then I started realizing, you know, Kyle, take the harder jobs. Take challenge, take the ones that are challenging. Which, you know, what, what's going to be wrong with taking that challenge? And I realized later on that as I started taking a challenge, what it would do, it stretched me and it would grow me mm, and it made me go yeah. in different directions. And, right. you know, so many people nowadays, especially these young kids, man, they don't, they don't go that extra mile. You know, they right. they don't understand to be stretched and and, and be groomed, and so you, you got to say that, that I'm not the same person when I went in that I've come out at. Right. And and, and that's what you really try to instill, especially mm-hmm. when we touch business. When we touch a business, when we come out. That business is not the same that it was when we after we left and once we came in. Wow, that's awesome. And, and, you know, that that is something, that is a problem we have today within ourselves and especially with our young people, that we impose limitations on ourselves without even really finding out what we are capable of first. And, um, you know, I had an opportunity in my life to do that. I really saw what my limitations were. I uh, I got way out there and um, was able to do phenomenal things. But once you know, you know, just how far you can go, you know, the mistake, the failure comes when you go beyond. And when you can run up to that line and back, oh, my goodness, there's so much you can do how successful you can be when you know to run up to the line and then go back, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But, um, you know, we we are really out of time, but I'm just really, really happy. And, King, if you're still on board, I just want you to go ahead and tell people about your radio show as well as uh, a little bit about how they can connect with you because the reason why I know Kyle is through King Connections and it's just a phenomenal idea, concept, the radio show, the business. Throw it all out there, King. Okay, well, Michael, thank you for that. Uh, Well, I have a show called The Conscious Capitalist that airs on Friday at 1.30, the Conscious Capitalist in airs on Blog Talk Radio Friday at 1.30. And we also are being um, aired on We Act Radio on Thursdays at 7 p.m. That's We Act Radio on Thursdays at 7 p.m. And the premise of the Conscious Capitalist show is basically to talk about this new movement that's pretty much going on in the world, uh, this paradigm shift in people's thinking in which people realize that Business can actually be used to elevate humanity and not just take away. Ever since the Occupy on Wall Street incidents and all these greedy corporations have kind of set a bad taste in American smiles or the world's smiles about business. And conscious capitalism is an international movement that was started by Whole Foods owner John Mackey. And, and it's a global movement that's happening around the world in which people are doing business with a whole different mindset. Just quickly... It's doing business under four key principles, which is having a higher purpose for your business, making sure that your stakeholders uh, benefit and identifying who your stakeholders in your business understand that's one of the keys to sustainability. Uh, number three is being a conscious leader, because, of course, you've got to be a conscious leader to understand you want to create a business with a higher purpose than just making money and that you're going to look out for all your stakeholders, not just your shareholders. And then number four, finally, is, establishing conscious culture within your company, one that 
pays their employees a living wage from the onset and not have to have government regulation tell them to raise their minimum wage to $10. And also values employees and allow them to have a vested interest in the company. And so that's a whole new movement that's pretty much spreading. And, and my goal is really to get it into the small businesses' minds. Uh, people think about companies like Whole Foods and JetBlue and Southwest Airlines and Costco's and Trader Joe's. Wegmans, those are all conscious companies. They operate on a different principle. My goal through the radio show is to get it into the uh, smaller businesses' minds and get it into the school system, to the socially conscious uh, movement, and get them to realize there's a new, more sustainable business model out there. And so the show basically um, highlights and features a new uh, conscious leader every, every week on Fridays. We explore their business model, explore their passions, and really get them to share their higher story with us so that people can realize that there is business out there that actually does care for the community and gives back and that really uh, believes in doing great things. So thank you for the opportunity to share that with, with our listening audience. Yeah, and thank you, King, for telling me all about it. You know, I'm on board. I have been for some time now, and it's been a, a great ride and met a lot of great people, and it's just a phenomenal thing to think about doing business that is beyond just the bottom line. It's just Really a great concept. And thank you, King. And um, we're going to talk with you soon. And, you know, um, Kyle, I, I want to thank you again for uh, this great interview. I know we're going to have you on many times over. And um, we've got so much to share and so many, so many great stories. So I'm looking forward to that. But, um, you know, if there's any closing remarks you want to make, um, please do at this time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I want to thank uh, King, too. Thank you, King, for the opportunity and working with you and introducing me to your your network up there in D.C. area. Because of that, I was able to meet Michael. And so now, Michael, you know, thank you for having me on, you know, a, a measure of truth. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, hopefully, again, we've said something that has enlightened your audience uh, and raised that thought, you know, raised that, you know, so that they want to ask that question. Uh, we, we appreciate that because we'd be more than happy to do that and more than happy to come back on and be a part of it. And just, uh, just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, and thank you, Kyle. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about your book release and supporting you and just making sure that you uh, make the most of that self-publishing. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that experience as well. But um, just you have a wealth of knowledge to share, and I'm just so happy that you're not afraid and not ashamed to get out there and do what you have to do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've just come to the end of another great show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman, and also thanks to King for calling in and um, sharing a little bit with us as well. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. Before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.